Pia Carlson, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. So let's start, I wanna, I wanna start by asking some questions about overthinking, which is just such a common dilemma I think a lot of us find ourselves in, um, at least from time to time. How would you describe overthinking to a five-year-old? So really little kid, like how to break it down. Like what, what is overthinking at its most basic level? I actually have a child myself at that age. So I would usually say to okay. him, <laughs> I used to say to him, you know, uh, leave that thought alone and, uh, and, and continue what you were doing before you, you thought, got that thought in your head. And he understands that. So leave the thoughts alone. Uh, because if you, do, if you dwell on those thoughts too long, you feel too bad and you can't sleep and you can't function. So a five-year-old would, would really, yeah, he can understand this. So he actually instructs himself like the other day when he was uh, promised an ice cream and it turned out there was no ice cream left. You know, we were at this, uh, this, this uh, reception at the clinic and, and my colleagues, uh, you know, promised him an ice cream. And then when they went to the fridge or the freezer, it was, uh, it was empty. There was no ice cream. So he was really disappointed. So you could just hear him in the sofa afterwards instructing himself, leave the thought alone. Because <laughs> otherwise oh. <laughs> he would, you know, <laughs> ruminate. So, so um, he, he manages that. So. But the opposite of leaving the thought alone is, is could be overthinking if you spend a long time, like, you know, ruminating about what you could have got or what you couldn't have got, you know, regrets and so on. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this is a, it, it's a really important kind of, I don't know if it's, it's, sometimes it seems obvious, but sometimes it seems incredibly subtle that this distinction between having a thought and continuing to think about that thought right like that it, it always yeah. surprised me surprised me sometimes that it's just not something a lot of people have been taught to, no, to think much no. about right not at Is all that, do you have the same like, like, kind of experience the same it's the same because i wasn't overthinking myself i was i wasn't overthinking when i was a child so i would come home from school and you know really dwell on something stupid i said and my my my, my dad and that was back in the 80s he would say to me oh pian i would listen to your talk for you know the whole weekend you know stop this overthinking and and leave the the shit alone he had this metaphor you know if you, if you keep on you know turning into the shit it will keep on smelling you need to leave this the shit for the for drying out that was his metaphor and that was a good advice for my dad of course and he, that was kind of a metacognitive advice but the problem was he didn't really teach me how to do it so he didn't instruct me you know what what exactly is the how to do it so he he didn't teach me. So I, I would say, yeah, I should leave it alone, but I can't, you know, how do I do it? How do I do it? And so that's really what, what I what what would have been great to, um, to have him taught me, you know, in, in practice, uh, like I do with my child, you know, you, it's like a, a, like a mosquito bite. You can leave the mosquito bite alone. That's like the thought. And, and these kind of metaphors would have been really great if my dad had, had you know, taught me how to do it, not just told me, you know, do it, but, but how to do it. Yeah. yeah, and that's such a relatable experience. I think we, we can all, I, I think a lot of people, even if they're not, even if they don't have this formal distinction in their head between, you know, sort of the arrival of a thought, but then continuing to think about that thought. I think a lot of people, at some point, they realize like, oh, I should probably stop thinking about this so much. It's not, it's not leading to anything good, but it's really hard. Right? <laughs> even if I want to, it's kind of hard. So we'll, I want, I want to ask you about some specific kind of practices there. But before we do, let's, let's, let's stay a little bit broader and, and talk a little bit more about overthinking. Um, what are, in your experience, what, what are some of the most common like forms of overthinking? Like you use the word, uh, ruminating or dwelling on something. That's one like, what, form what comes of it, yeah. up? Like, okay. So the, so the most common ones are the past oriented, uh, dwelling, which would be rumination and, you know, um, post-mortem, post-mortem thinking where you are kind of looking through all the stupid things you said and all the stupid things you've done, uh, in a, in a social situation, for example. And then there would be the worry, which is more uh, future oriented 
what if this happens? What if I got Corona? What if I, what if I, I say something stupid? So that's more in the future where it would be more like, what if this happened? What if that happened? And then you have the, uh, you have like um, monitoring, which is more like, you know, you're, you're checking your mind for, for, for bad thoughts or you're checking the environment for something you don't like. Or, so checking your behavior. Um, but of course, problem solving can take you know, all kinds of thinking, even if they're good in small doses, they can be really bad in, in very big doses. So even if, let's say, problem solving is good or uh, finding answers to your, to, your, to your questions in your head is good in, in small doses, like half an hour, everything could be bad if you do it 24 hours a day. So if you, you know, problem solve in your head, a big problem you have 24 hours a day, let's say, you can't really function, you can't be uh, present uh, in your family life, you can't work, it's going to be, be impairing your, your function if you do it 24 hours, let's say. Sure. Yeah. So that's kind of a nice way to, to divide it up is kind of past forms of overthinking, like rumination, future forms like worry, and then kind of present focused ones, which are about um, sort of monitoring, like you said. What about another one I sort of think of, and I, I, don't, I don't normally put this into the class of overthinking, but what about things like kind of, you see this more with um, maybe with depression um, and kind of self-worth issues, but like self-judgment stuff kind of like putting yourself down mm -hmm. judging yourself mm -hmm. like you do yeah. for you does that's that a, fall into the category well, of overthinking yeah, too that's a, that's a type as well to you kind of regrets and you, you 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 know hit yourself in the head kind of you really regret something you said and you you think you're stupid so you're giving yourself a big um smack in the bum not for two minutes but for 10 hours <laughs> so you would have a long-term smack in the bum in your own head uh, and of course, that can yeah, take overhand. And there's really no evidence that you, you learn from your mistakes by long term smacking yourself compared to short term smacking yourself. So two minutes regret would, would be, give you just as much learning from a situation that, uh, compared to 10 hours of regret and, and push, you know, hitting your head. That's so that's such a great point. It's one of these things I in my work as a therapist, I often I, I go to my whiteboard and I draw a little um, like a diagram of, uh, like a law of diminishing returns curve, you know, where mm -hmm. it's sort of like in the, the, the first, you know, 30 seconds, maybe minute that you spend thinking about something like, sure, maybe you're getting a little bit, you're, you're reflecting, you're getting a little bit of information about maybe I shouldn't do this again next time, but very, very quickly you, you stop seeing returns mm. on that investment and, and it's all exactly. side effect and no benefit. Right? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So yeah, what? Let me ask you the, another question that it's I think kind of stumps a lot of people, and I I think about this a lot. But why? So I think ev everybody falls into overthinking from time to time. Like I mean, yeah. the Dalai Lama probably overthinks sometimes, right? But but there does <laughs> well, seem to be this this line where everybody does it sometimes, but some people overthink a lot. Like it's it's exactly. what they do almost. Yeah. Um, so it's almost like why a is that why? Yeah. So why is it that some people fall into such a kind of persistent um, difficulty with overthinking, whereas other people, it's just it happens every once in a while, but then they kind of move on from it? Well, we actually know why they do it, because um, the, the, the creator of metacognitive therapy did many studies investigating exactly that question. So he would ask thousands of, of overthinking students at Manchester University, for example, why do you overthink? Why do you do it? And in this very, very big studies, he would get two answers from these people. So there's two reasons why we overthink. So one answer would be, but I can't help it. You know, this is what I've done all my life. I can't help it. It's just me. It's my personality. So he would call that kind of answer uncontrollability answer. So one reason we do it a lot uh, is, is because we just don't think we have a choice. 
And the other uh, reason we got in the studies were uh, the usefulness answer. So people would say, I need to think about things. I need to uh, spend time on this problem to, to solve it, you know, to get answers that I can use. Or I need to uh, worry so that I'm more prepared. My worry prepares me. If I don't worry about my exams, they will go really shitty. So I need to worry to, uh, to cope better. So he would. So there are two uh, metacognitive beliefs that uh, that is the cause of overthinking. In the very, if you do that a lot, you think it's useful, and you think you can't really choose to not do it. You can't control it. And so these are the two um, yeah, two things we work on in metacognitive therapy, so that people realize they can control it and they can choose to to not do it all the time. And then they, it's not useful. You know, you're not your exam is not turning out better. You spend uh, 24 hours worrying about your exam. You just don't sleep, and you and you get really bad at your exam if you do it over if you overdo it. Yeah, this is it's it's great, and that's definitely my experience. That the vast majority of kind of motivations for why people get stuck in overthinking is it really comes down to at least one, but often both of these kind of at the same time. There's this kind of unexamined beliefs that uh, of either like I that overthinking is it's something that happens to me. It's not something I'm doing, mm -hmm. right? It's this. It's a mm -hmm. part of my exactly. personality. It's, it's just it's the way my mind works. Yeah, it's uncontrollable, yeah. right? So, yeah. but but I often think. I use that as an opportunity to try and empathize with people a little bit because there there is an aspect of overthinking that is it's not uncontrollable exactly, but it but it does feel kind of compulsive or or unintent like nobody decides you know what, I'm gonna sit down I'm gonna start overthinking right now <laughs> right it, it's just we, we kind of find well, ourselves I, I mean yeah I suppose you well yeah we can talk about that sometimes we do that on purpose um, for therapeutic reasons but. Yeah. Yeah. But there is an aspect of overthinking, right, where it's it's sort of this middle ground between it's not something we have no control over, but but it is kind of habitual. I mean, you and like a lot of habits, there there is like an, an element of, if not uncontrollability, like um, n we didn't initiate it necessarily ourselves. Would you would you agree? Well, there's a, there's a part of low awareness. We see that a lot with rumination, that people have a very low awareness, so they won't really realize that they're ruminating. Let's say uh, maybe they're four hours in the rumination before they suddenly realize, where have I been the, the last four hours? You know, they haven't seen television. They've just been... So, so that's kind of what we see is low awareness. They don't, they don't realize that they are ruminating until, you know, many hours in the process. They've been on the rumination train for many hours before they realize it. So, so we see that a lot with rumination. We don't see that that much with worry because people who are worrying, they, they're really quite aware. When they start worrying, they get lots of symptoms and, and they, they have a high awareness of this worry. And they would actually come to therapy and say, I worry too much. You know, part of my anxiety is, is, is worry driven. I need to worry less. Whereas you don't hear that with depression. You don't hear people come and say, I, I ruminate too much, you know, help me ruminate less. So we don't, but we, the depressed people don't have the same kind of awareness that, that this rumination process is, is a problem. Like we see with the, with the anxious people who are really aware that, that their worry is a problem. Um, is that what you mean what's, by this? Uh, what's, yeah. yeah, I mean, that's, that's a fascinating way to look at it, that level of, a, of awareness, I think. Um, it, it's, it's lower. Why, why is that? Do we know why that is? Why, why there's this dissociation where in, in depression, the level of awareness is lower than in anxiety? Well, there's probably two reasons. Uh, one of them is that we're not taught that, that depression is, is driven by rumination. That's a new way of looking at depression in, in the first place. So people are not really, uh, they're not 
pointing towards their own rumination. They think it's a, it's a, it's a solve, it's solving my depression, you know, it's not the problem. It's not driven, driving my depression. So that's quite new for people. So they are not actually trying to become aware of, of this rumination level because that's not where they look for the answer to their depression normally. They think that's the solution. <laughs> uh, so, uh, so that's a new way of seeing depression and understanding the cause of depression. So that's probably one reason. Um, and uh, and also it's it's um, well it's very internally focused and it's 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 not so symptom uh, driven. I, like when you ruminate, it takes a long time before you feel low. So it may start might start with just you know what should I do tomorrow? Maybe I shouldn't do anything. Maybe I don't have any friends who like to see me. Why don't I have any friends? So it takes maybe one or two hours before you can actually feel the low mood. Maybe so there's whereas with worry you feel it instantly and you feel the anxiety instantly. What if I get cancer? What if I get corona? Ugh. Uh, so you have this instant physical reaction where it comes a bit slower with the rumination. So that's probably one of the reasons it's a bit more. That's low a awareness. great thought. I'd never, I'd never thought quite about it like that. But, but in, when you worry, you just immediately activate your fight or flight system, right? Yeah. Some of that immune system just <laughs> kicks up, right? That yeah. adrenaline just surges and you feel anxious. Whereas you're right with depression, it's it's much more of a slow burn, right? And so you can you can end up doing it for a long time before you mm. really realize really costs, feel low. like the side effects. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. So we've, we've, we've mentioned both anxiety and depression um, just in the first few minutes here. So one thing I have noticed as, as a practicing therapist myself um, is that it really seems to me like overthinking is at the root of just about every form of emotional suffering or distress that people show up in my office for as a therapist. And mm -hmm. Certainly anxiety or depression, but you, people come in with relationship struggles, anger difficulties, I mean, you name it. And it seems to me that like some form of overthinking is right there staring at you, you in the face when you, when, you, when you learn to look for it, right? Would, would you agree it's that it's a fairly yeah. transdiagnostic yeah. kind of mechanism? It is. It is, and it's actually across all disorders. So, so even though we don't have any studies with like eating disorders, so we actually have really good experience in the clinic treating eating disorder with this overthinking, uh, you know, focus. So you would see people with eating disorders overthinking their diet and you know calorie, cal they're, they're counting calories and they're worrying about being becoming fat and they are you know ruminating about how much they ate yesterday. So we see this overthinking across all disorders and it can actually explain all disorders even though we don't have uh, evidence yet for them all. We only have evidence for anxiety, depression, PTSD, and OCD for the moment being for, for now. Yeah, and that's and of course the the caveat is there there are there are also other things that that cause these things, but it it does seem like in a very striking way overthinking is just such a common denominator among virtually every form of, and 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 it it seems to me too not just um, on a clinical level but even kind of subclinical levels of anxiety stress kind of low low mood like again it's one of those things where once you learn to see it. It's it's there all the time. Like, oh, feeling kind of down. You can... There's probably <laughs> overthinking right over your shoulder, metaphorically yeah, speaking. It is you know? actually. It is actually. So when I, I did CBT, cognitive behavior therapy, before, and I didn't have this focus, but now you know when I when I've learned metacognitive therapy, I have to see it everywhere. And even we have very we have, we're doing some research in the clinic, and we're actually doing it with couples uh, as well. And it's very very interesting how you know we have this couple and they're arguing all the time and ruminating about each other and, and so on and if you if you kind of stop that and, and ask them to 
um, to fight from eight to nine, let's say, <laughs> to, to let their thoughts be, and then only do the discussions and the fighting from eight to nine. It's amazing how, you know, they, they still have the problems in the in the relationship, but they have really a good relationship too, because the rest of the time they, they focus on, you know, common things they do together, their children and so on. And they actually, they actually have a good relationship, even though they still have problems. So we have experienced that, that most problems, even couples relationships problems can actually be solved with this uh, limiting, this overthinking and over talking about your problems and feelings all the time. Okay, I, I love that. I, I was going to ask you about this a little later on, that this idea of um, scheduling time to, to overthink. <laughs> yeah. but, but since you brought it up, mm -hmm. I, I want to bring it up now and, and kind of pick your brain on this. So this, this idea of, I think the original formulation of, of scheduled worry was, was created for like generalized anxiety specifically, where you set aside some time and you worry on purpose um, within those boundaries. And then you, you, you put off or defer, you're trying to defer your worries throughout the day um, and wait until, you know, my worry time in the evening. Exactly. Um, and exactly. and it's, 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 it's remarkably, I mean, it's, it's arguably, I would say as someone who, who spends <laughs> almost all my time um, treating anxiety issues, it's arguably the best single intervention for chronic worry that, that I'm, that I'm aware of. But if, so we've just talked about how overthinking generally is so pervasive across all sorts of emotional um, sort of forms of, of suffering and distress. If scheduling your worry is so effective for, for anxiety, um, and, and worry is just a particular form of overthinking, would it make sense that, that a more general version of scheduling unhelpful thinking generally would, would be effective for almost anything? Anything, yes, I would say that because we see it. We we use this intervention across that would really it's it's useful across everything. So, like let's say the eating disorders, for example, when they calorie count the whole time, so they they still want to have a good diet and they still think if you if you tell them, but all, all this overthinking about food and and the calories and so on, that's part that's maintaining your your it's disorder. They say, but I can't, I shouldn't stop it completely, and then it's like a, a compromise. People can say, well, okay. A little bit is good, but but a lot is not good. And so most people can actually say, okay, so so um, calories, uh, you know, scheduling could be from five to six. I could I could agree on that. So it's also, you know, eatable for most people to to do that instead of going completely zero, as from twenty four hours a day to zero. So um, so this rumination time or worry time or whatever time that, that it's a, it's a good compromise to do it a little bit. There. Yeah. Interesting. Still do now, it. is there is a, it, would you make any modifications to the kind of instructions or, or how you do it depending on the type of overthinking? So if you've got someone who's a who chronically worries and they've got a lot of anxiety and you you recommend scheduled worry and then someone else who struggles with depression in large part because they've got kind of chronic rumination going on, would you would you change up your kind of instructions for how they do that scheduled overthinking no, or would no, it basically be identical? Okay. It's the same. And also we do actually have mixed group intervention in the clinic. So we have this six week intervention. We don't screen, we don't assess or anything. It's everyone from, from the streets coming in. So people have PTSD, depression, anxiety, and they, they follow the same manual. Um, and, the, and the results have actually been, been published in Frontiers of Psychology. So you can find them there. Uh, and it's, it's really amazing how this, you know, we, we do the same thing across. So people say, well, I, they suffer from different things, but it's all overthinking. So even if you sit with someone with PTSD and, and you yourself have generalized anxiety disorder, it's the same maintaining process. So you still, it's, it's overthinking, it's over ruminating. Yeah. So we do the same across all disorders. Hmm. Fascinating. Yeah. It's so, it's so interesting. Um, 
So let me, let's let's back up a little bit, uh, kind of go higher level. Um, you, you mentioned you've mentioned a couple times that you you sort of started off as a, as a cognitive behavioral therapist, um, but now you do you do metacognitive work. So, what do you see as kind of a, a core? Maybe the, what's the the one or two kind of core differences between your approach as a as a metacognitive therapist versus as a, a traditional kind of cognitive behavioral approach? Like how how do those two kind of differ mm-hmm. primarily? Uh, where they are like night and day, they are completely opposite each other. So, uh, so when I when I realized that, that what I've been doing for ten years, CBT cognitive behavior therapy was was completely useless, really, that was a big uh, wake up call. And I, I remember ruminating the whole night because it was just too much for me. I was what what have I been doing for the last you know I've been just you know overthinking with people. I've, I've taught them to go home and and work on their thoughts, and there was just more thinking and more thinking. So that was really um, yeah. So so they don't really. Um, they have a big differences. So one example is in, in cognitive therapy, we, we work on the content level. So if someone comes in and say, I feel like a failure, we would work on changing the content. Um, and so what's the evidence you're a failure? What the, what's the counter evidence? Could you see yourself in a different way? So it would be interpretations we work on. Whereas if the same pro- person comes in metacognitive therapy, we would say, how much time do you spend thinking about being a failure? So it's a completely different approach. We don't look at the interpretations. People can keep their interpretations. It's all a matter of how much time they spend uh, on these interpretations. Uh, so completely different dialogue and intervention. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's 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 pretty wild that when I first came across metacognitive therapy, I thought, oh, this is interesting. It's kind of like a new wrinkle on CBT. You know, it's a new tool that, but the more, yeah, the more you too. look into it, you more, you realize how on a very um, fundamental, almost kind of philosophical level, it's, it's like diametrically opposed to the approach in CBT. So l- let me ask you as, as someone who's kind of lived in both worlds, do you think there's, do you think there's any room for working on a, on the content level or, or should you really just stay away from that entirely? Like, are there any exceptions well, to that? Well, I, we thought in the beginning when I did, uh, I, I was, I was, uh, I thought this was just an add-on like mindfulness. So I was, I was, uh, so we, we, we mixed, we mixed it a little bit. So in the clinic, in the beginning, that's like 10 years ago, we thought, okay, let's, let's do a little bit of, we, we mixed it a bit, but, but soon we realized that that just, you know, made the, all the, the sessions longer. So we need to see people for longer time. And, and it was just uh, much shorter and much more neat and, and quick. You could get people out of depression and anxiety if you kept, you know, on the metacognitive level in the manual. So there, there were no need to contaminate the two methods with each other. There was no need for, to do that at all. No, you yeah, get so the best results neat. going straight away to Rome. Yeah. Yeah, I, I I admit that I, I haven't gone uh, full on kind of cold turkey with, with the cognitive approach. But the more you know, really, but the more I do it, the more I'm aware of the fact that it can be. It's confusing. I think it is. It is back it is. and forth. It is, and as a client, you are confused because which thought do I need to process and work on, and which thoughts do I leave alone? So you get this new trigger thoughts, new worries, you get new worries, actually, if you mix it too much, because you, you don't really, what, what thoughts do I need to work on? And what thought, what thoughts do I need to leave alone? And it becomes really, you know, not very clear um, to you. So here's a, okay, well, what do you think about this one? I, I, I think about, I go back and forth on this one a lot. So a, a like a, a pretty standard approach in, in traditional cognitive therapy is that you, you sort of you, you take note of your thoughts, right? And then you, you identify what are called cognitive distortions, right? Sort of errors in thinking like, oh, that's black and white thinking, or that's jumping to conclusions. Or, 
And then you restructure the thought to be more realistic or more rational or or more helpful or or whatever. Right. So Mm -hmm. I think, I think pretty obviously when you get into the restructuring phase, that's you're in content right there. Right. Obviously like that. And that's sort of a lot of what metacognitive therapy, I think um, moves away from. But one thing I wonder about is I, I find that there's still a lot of utility in noticing, like noticing patterns of either distorted thinking or unhelpful thinking, but, but just kind of stopping there, like going, oh, okay, like that's obviously kind of black and white thinking or overgeneralizing. And then using that as sort of a cue to detach from thinking about this thought generally. So instead of going into reinterpretation or restructuring, you almost use the, the, the cognitive distortion as a, as a cue for not thinking more generally. So what, what do you think? Like our, so our identifying that? cognitive distortions was, is that... It, but why would that be important? Why would that be, if, if they are not important, if, if the distortions are not the problem, why would you look for them? Well, because I think they're, because I think they're helpful. Like I think a, a lot of people with that low level of, if you're not very skilled metacognitively generally, like thinking about your thinking, it can, mm. I think sometimes the people easily can latch onto the idea of cognitive distortions, like, oh, there's black and white thinking, or there's mind reading, right? And that's the, it it helps them see that they're overthinking in the first place. And so you don't, you don't don't use it to, go ahead. But what if if they don't, not overthinking black and white thinking or distortions, what if they're overthinking realistic thoughts? (laughs) So you get this person who is, it's not black, it's, it's a realistic thought. They have cancer, they might die in a few weeks. It's not any black and white right thinking is actually a realistic thinking. They need to not, so, so if you use the distortions as, as a cue to which thoughts to, you know, th- then you get into problems because not all people have distortions and they still overthink. <laughs> so, right, so, uh, right. so that would kind of, that's, you know, it's, it's not necessary. It's just an unnecessary, um, you know, pathway to stray from, from the, you know, you don't need to do it. It's, it's just, um, yeah, that's a quicker way to get people out of um, the suffering. Because uh, because not all people who are overthinking have distortions. That's my uh, that's my um, um, we have this yeah in the clinic we see that a lot. So people who have actually realistic thoughts sometimes. Have you not? When I did CBT, sometimes I thought, oh yeah, but you, it's true. You know, you have a shitty life. You don't have you know your boyfriend has left you. Your your mom has cancer. You don't have any job. You know and so on. And so trying to kind of you know find out what kind of distortions do we have here? You have a black and white thinking. I don't know if it's it's. Uh, uh, sometimes you know it's not important to to realize what kind of distortion. It's more important to realize how much time you spend and is it a good thing for you to spend so much time on your thinking? Could you spend less? Could, can you control it? That's much more important questions, I think, than than what kind of distortions do you do you have? I I love that, and and I, one of the reasons I I think I'm increasingly drawn to the sort of metacognitive um, approach is that it in in a in a strange way, even though it's got cognitive in the title. In an interesting way, it's much more behavioral than cognitive ther- than traditional mm. cognitive therapy because it it sort of says it's not about thinking necessarily; it's about the act of choosing to start thinking or not, right? Mm. And if yeah, you yeah. instead of overthinking, you you could sort of realize that you're overthinking and then get on with your life instead, and you could practice that that sort of like men- I know this is kind of a, a controversial term, but kind of mental behavior of not going down that particular rabbit hole of thinking mm, and instead yeah, choosing yeah. to put your attention somewhere else. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that's very, more I, like, I like that kind of pragmatic. Approach. 
it is more behavioral yeah, so that, approach. And, and that's an interesting transition to another kind of contrast I want to pick your brain about a little bit. How do you see, so obviously um, traditional cognitive therapy, I think is kind of falling out of favor, especially with younger therapists. That's, that's my impression. But it seems like the dominant approach that is becoming much more popular is um, ACT, acceptance commitment therapy, or, or kind of mindfulness-based approaches. So how do you see, how do you see um, metacognitive therapy in relation to these kind of newer third wave approaches like, like act or mindfulness-based yeah. approaches? Well, if, first of all, first of all, if you look at, at the evidence, if you look at the, the studies, they are not near the same results of met, as metacognitive therapy. So if you look at, let's say, acceptance and commitment and, and the, the effect sizes, they are not, they're not near metacognitive therapy. So in metacognitive therapy, you can actually get 80% across disorders out of their uh, depression, anxiety, out of their diagnosis. And that's not where, where, you know, acceptance and commitment, like depression, for example, they're around 50%, like cognitive behavior therapy for depression. So you don't get any really good results compared to cognitive behavior therapy when it comes to the other new approaches. So that's one difference, uh, the effect size. Um, and then, of course, uh, well, that in content, what you do is very different. So like, let's say in acceptance and commitment, you spend some time ruminating about your values. Uh, which would be unnecessary rumination in, in metacognitive turn. You don't need to know your values in order to get out of your depression, get out of your anxiety. So that's unnecessary again. Um, Ooh, wait, to, okay, to well, let me ask you about that. that. That's a really interesting, uh, I want to I ask you about this. So, but don't you think that, so, so let's say you're, you imagine someone, they're in the situation, they find themselves worrying about some mistake. They, they, they said something insensitive at work and they're, they're ruminating about, um, you know, that, that the fact that they did that and they're, they're, maybe they're worrying too about like, what are people thinking of me? Um, they're starting to feel kind of down and, and a little anxious. Um, and the, I think the ideal is to, to notice that they're overthinking and to shift their attention onto something else, something actually productive right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, rather than, than overthinking. Yeah. Don't you think, wouldn't that be easier to do? Cause it's a hard thing when you're, you know, overthinking kind of has a, it has a kind of gravity to it, right? Like you feel yourself pulled to, especially people who are really in the habit of overthinking to do that. Don't you think it's um, easier to sort of shift your attention onto something else when that, when that something else has a has has is more a t like kind of associated with something that's got a lot of motivational pull to it like like a strong value so if you think i, I should you know I'm, I'm here it's the weekend i, I want to play with my kids at the park but i keep dwelling on this thing that happened yesterday at work wouldn't wouldn't spending a little time thinking about the fact that you know you know what i like i don't get to spend a ton of time with my kids because i work so much and and i'm here and i really value my relationship with my kids and how important that is and if you do that, if you kind of cl briefly clarify the value, wouldn't you think that would make it easier to kind of redirect your attention off the, the overthinking? What do, you, what do you think about that? Well, I would, I would say that, that that's just half the way to, half the, way to, the, to the goal in metacognitive therapy because the, the goal in metacognitive therapy is to realize that independent of your situation, independent of if you're in a situation where it's value-based or whatever, you can choose to where, you, where to put your attention. Uh, so, so, so if you can only do it in a in a value based uh, environment, let's say with your kids, then you're in a big trouble because then you can only control your rumination in a certain environment, 
and that's not really uh, the goal of metacognitive therapy. So, so we would say that that it's even a better goal is that you realize that you can control your attention, you control you can control your rumination independent of where you are. So let's say you have a job that is not very value-based. So you're in a job where you have to do work that, that you don't value very much. You still have to be able to kind of control your attention. Because if you can, if you can only do that, uh, if it's value-based, then you are not really, you, you, that's going to be a bit um, hard for you to co cope throughout the whole life, I think. It's better yeah, so to that's, realize that's a, complete control. That's a good point, is that you you wouldn't want someone thinking, I have to be able to connect some new behavior to some pre-existing value. Exactly. Right? Yeah. You can Otherwise do I can't it, control ind it independently. Independent. Right. Yeah, but, that's the goal. Right. So so it's mm -hmm. worth working on and kind of no, getting better really at because, that skill. Yeah, that's, the skill. No, no, no. I mean, I mean thinking, yeah. of redirecting your attention, regardless of, exactly. of whether you can connect exactly. it to a value, is worth working on. Um but don't you think, do you think there's a place for some form of sort of values clarification as a like accentuator or facilitator of that? Like, can't you make that process stronger or easier if you can connect it to a, to a pre-existing value? Like, do, is there, well, is there a place for would, that? Do you think? I wouldn't do it. Well, I wouldn't do it with people with, with mental illnesses. So if you're in a depressed state, that's not really a good time to kind of make decisions and, and, and women and think about your values. That's not the, the best time and place to do that because you're, you're depressed or your, your whole system is completely black and so on. So I wouldn't really do that with, with depressed people or people who are, who are mentally ill. You, you might be able to talk about your values, you know, at a dinner table with, with people who are uh, well-functioning, uh, non-depressed, anxious and so on. That's probably fine to have a chat about your values and discuss that. But as, a, as an intervention, to get people out of depression I wouldn't say that's really uh, useful and that's the same with mindfulness very internally focused and you know that depressed people have so much internal focus um, beforehand so why would you even enhance the internal focus that's really really not a good idea yeah it's interesting there, there really is this kind of um, I, I think a lot about this sort of slippery slope phenomena where even theoretically, if you could say, you know, move your attention from this form of overthinking to some more helpful form of thinking, yeah, still th thinking. there, there yeah. is this worry that like thinking, even if it's helpful, it very easily falls into unhelpful forms of thinking, right? So better to just not go there at all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you can't really solve overthinking with better thinking or positive thinking, or it's still overthinking. So even if it's positive thinking, it, it will still be overthinking. So yeah, if the problem is overthinking, there's only one way out and that's less thinking. Yeah, so you, you've, you have made a pretty compelling case for, I think for, for the metacognitive approach, at least for thinking more about this, um, this approach to, to working through, through these kinds of struggles. So let me ask you this, why, and this gets really kind of high level, why do you think metacognitive therapy isn't more popular than it is? I mean, I know it is popular in certain, like if you're in the north of the UK or if you're in Scandinavia, it's, it's relatively common, but it is, I bring it up all the time, like any chance I get with when I meet someone new who's a therapist, I'm like, I'm talking about metacognitive therapy because I'm really excited about it and think it's so interesting and helpful. And everyone, I just get blank, blank stares. I go to conferences and people are like, what, huh? So what, what's the deal? Like, why isn't, if it's, if it, it's so, I mean, first of all, it's just fascinating. It's really interesting, but it's also incredibly helpful. So why isn't it more well-known, do you think? Well, there's many, many reasons for that. But one of them is that, you know, in, in Britain and in Denmark, we have, I mean, in Denmark, at least, we have a, a freedom of methods. So you can use other kind of methods you want. 
And we have a tradition that people pay for their own education. So in Denmark, for example, therapists would, would look for a two, two year program and then they would uh, pay for that. And, and of course, Adrian Wells comes to Denmark and then he will go to his training and we have about 55 Danish people who are trained. But in, in, in the United States, uh, do people pay for their own education or is, I mean, after education when they're finished as a psychologist or do their job pay for it? Like um, the, the employer maybe would pay for it. If they have like yeah, a, or your, your PhD afterwards. is funded because you're doing research yeah. or something. Yeah, so yeah, you're not exactly, paying out exactly, usually. exactly. So, so that's one reason. And and in in, in Britain, for example, the, you you need to use CBT. And I don't know if you have it like a national national health service uh, approach in in the United States where they say, well, first choice is CBT. So your employer would probably pay you to get a, a CBT training instead of MCT training because it's uh, yeah, that's not what the national health ins insurances and so on want. Yeah, it's. I, I think that could definitely be be playing a big Probably. role um, with all this. And of course, I, the another, another reason is is that you, if you do a method in in Denmark, at least you kind of um, you're not uh, you're engaged to it, so you are kind of uh, you're married to it. So in Denmark, it's very difficult for for therapists to change their approach. So let's say you've done CBT for twenty years. I've only done it for ten years. This change of approach is it, you can be very rigid with your approach, and it can be very difficult to change. It's, it's not like a doctor where you have a new pill and the doctor says, "Well, we don't use the old pill now; we use the new one." In <laughs> In a, in a therapist setting, you are more, um, yeah, you're more engaged to your method, and you don't just change it overnight. So, so that might be another reason that it takes some time for therapists to kind of get used to a new method in that way, in this way. Yeah, it, it also strikes me that that the metacognitive people I've met are, in the best sense of the word, just nerds, like absolute nerds, <laughs> <laughs> and maybe not the greatest at. Unlike the, the selling. people who are really <laughs> good right. at branding and selling, selling and marketing, like phenomenal, yeah, maybe right. too good. That's right. <laughs> you could make the case. You're right. right. You're right. You're right. <laughs> yeah. If you look at the evidence, that the evidence and the articles, they're not compelling. If you look into the journals, you know that you don't. They don't have really good results, but they have a good. Yeah, they're good at selling it and and so on. Yeah. And whereas in, in, in metacognitive therapy, you have some, some nerds, some professors sitting there doing lots of articles, but they're not really good at promoting it. That's right. Yeah, well, that's, that's why so you're that's on the podcast, Pia. We're, we're, we're spreading the good word. Here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, in my clinic, we do, we do therapy, like group therapy, like I talked about in English, actually. So you could, you could do it online in groups. Um, we have people who actually have lived in the United States, lived in the Netherlands, and are fluent in English. So... You can get it, but online at the moment only. Hmm. So let's let's get into some some kind of practical um, ideas for uh, for overthinking specifically, but from kind of a metacognitive approach. Um, you've got this great um, metaphor that I, I just love, which is the the busy railway metaphor. Could you talk about that and why it's uh, so helpful for for overthinking? Well, it, well, it, it's just a metaphor. Your brain is like a very busy, busy railway station where you have trains coming the whole time and the trains are like your thoughts. So every day you have thousands of different thoughts that you could ruminate on if you wanted to. So I don't know if you've had any thoughts today that you just didn't ruminate on. Have you had any thoughts today? Let's say, yes, you know, where's the, where's the coffee? <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't really feel like breakfast. What should I eat? Better? So lots of thoughts are just, you know, trains going through your head and you're not really on the train. You don't, you don't jump on the train. But then you have some trains that stop up and they open the doors. And the question is, can you, can you, can you choose not to, you know, jump on the train, even if it's, you know, stands there, open the, the doors? Can you then choose to stay on the platform? And one train could be, 
oh my god i'm a failure oh my god why am i so stupid that could be a thought and if you if you stay on the platform this thought will actually um, self-regulate so you know you'd by the end of the day you've just forgotten about this thought and it's just you know as, but if you if you jump on the, the the train and you stay there for let's and you start thinking about why am i such a failure i make the same mistakes again and again why do i keep on doing that you know three hours later on the train you become depressed and you feel like your whole life is miserable there's not no you know you might as well become you know commit suicide because you're useless um, it's such so a that's powerful a idea that the idea that you can you can have a thought without thinking more about it, like it, it it's it's like the more I think about that thought, the more revolutionary it it, it seems to me. Like it's so powerful. But but your the metaphor is brilliant because it really it makes it visceral, and I think in a really compelling way for people that you can start imagining favorite, literally um, as these trains. My favorite metaphor is actually the telephone metaphor because uh, thoughts are like a telephone ringing. So you can choose if you, if you kind of you know answer the telephone, or if you just l leave it alone and let it ring. And if you if you want have someone like a thought ringing you the whole time, you don't really want it to ring. The best strategy is actually to leave it alone because if you fight it too much, then it you, you it becomes more interesting for the thought to kind of call you. <laughs> so the best strategy is to leave it alone because then it becomes tired of calling you. And that's another really good metaphor, I think, so to leave the thought that's ringing a great, and not. That's and not it's a good answer. one too because you it it's got in the metaphor is the idea that it's yes you can leave the call alone but it, it's kind of hard because yeah. it's annoying to hear that yeah, ringing yeah, going course, on and like of course, of part course, of the reason people yeah. just answer calls all the time is because it gets rid of the the ringing in the short term <laughs> exactly, right exactly but then like it, but the then it ends up reinforcing yeah. that exactly, behavior whoever's yeah, calling you exactly, learns I can exactly. keep calling this person. Exactly, exactly. So, so the more, you know, attention you give it, the more they ring. Yeah. Yeah. So let's, uh, another uh, great little um, exercise slash metaphor you have is the window pane exercise. And, and I've heard, I think I heard this um, before I saw you talking about, it. I think this is kind of a standard metacognitive um, metaphor, but can you talk about the window pane exercise? What briefly? Well, it's actually, a, it's actually a behavioral experiment because like in the beginning of this podcast, we talk about what are the two metacognitive beliefs that are maintaining overthinking. And the two metacognitive beliefs that are important are the uncontrollability belief and the usefulness belief. And within working on the uncontrollability belief, we do some behavioral experiments, testing out, is it possible to leave a thought alone? And then we use the, the window exercise to, to show that it's possible. So it's more like testing out, can I leave a thought alone? Um, and then after that, you ask, so how much do you believe it now? Can you do the same at home when you, when you leave the office? And what you do is you actually write the, the trigger thought on the window. So that would be, I'm a failure, for example, or uh, what if I get sick? What if I get cancer? And then you kind and, of and to be clear, you're, you're, li you're literally writing you're literally this writing like, with it, a non-permanent on my, the window, right? right? Exactly. I take a, you know, a permanent writer, non-permanent writer, write it on the window, you know, what if I get cancer or what if I'm not good enough as a mom or whatever people are dwelling on and, and overthinking about. And so we kind of, first of all, zoom in on the thought and we realize that the rest, you can still kind of notice that there are some trees in the, in the background, you can see something, you know, but it's, it's more blurry because you're zooming in on the thought and that's like in the center of your attention. And then you kind of look through the thought and kind of focus on the background. So you, you can see the clear, you know, maybe there's a tree, maybe there's some cars in the background. And now these cars and trees are like your sense of attention. You can still feel the thought. So the, the, 
uh, one of the big things here is that the thought is still there. It's, it does still exist. You can still kind of feel it, but it's not clear, as clear as when you kind of look through it. So that's that kind of control exercise kind of show you that even though the thought is there all the time on your kind of window uh, in your head, you can you can choose to kind of look through it or, or zoom into it. So you have your attention is under your control. That's the purpose. I love it. And that's, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's such a great metaphor, too, because when you think about, um, you know, if you if you get a new job and you're, you're, you're picking office or someone assigns you an office, like everyone wants the office with the great view, right? With the big windows, the corner office, looking out at the mountains or the forest or the ocean or whatever it is. Um, but the the reason you want the the office with the great view is not because of the glass in the window, right? It's because of the view. It's because of what's out there. Like that's what matters. Not not the glass. Yeah. Like, you don't spend your time looking at the glass yeah. itself. It's a it's all about exactly. what's out there. And and yeah. that's such a I think that's such an important idea for when when you're in the middle of life and, and things are happening, mm. a thought can show up, right? But mm. it's so yeah. it's dangerous to get lost in, on that thought level, right? And, and the side effect of which is you give up time and, and, and energy that could go toward actually living like the good stuff out there because you're so lost exactly. in what's going on on this this shallow little level in front of you yeah it's a good one i, I get excited just talking about this stuff I, think <laughs> I just think it's so powerful i think it's crazy that people yeah, don't like, we, we should be teaching like with your son like we should be teaching this stuff when kids are five yeah. years old not oh, when they're 45. we do we do, uh, we do the opposite don't you, haven't you noticed in school in denmark at least people are taught to think more you know so in school yes. you say you have to reflect more on that you have to really think about your mistakes and you really have to think about what you, what you need to do better so we teach the opposite we teach people to think more that's really bad. Even in CBT, then they go to therapy and then they're taught to go home and restructure their thoughts and spend time writing them down and so on. So um, we don't we don't teach a metacognitive things in school and in therapy, not at all. So let me. Um, we've got a few minutes left here. I, I want to um, talk about some other some other questions a little bit um, related to, but different than than overthinking. So. You are one of the few mental health professionals I've come across who seems to share my concern about the use of coping skills to manage difficult thoughts and feelings. Mm -hmm. So let me ask you, from, from your perspective, what's the problem with immediately trying to, say, calm yourself down or make yourself feel better when you find yourself worrying or anxious or, or yeah. overthinking? How do you think about coping skills? Well, there are many skills? problems. Many, many problems. The, the, the first problem is that you only get a short-term effect. So it's like, you know, we say then like peeing your pants to get the warmth. You get the warmth, but peeing in your pants is <laughs> not really, it's not really getting you anywhere in the long term. So it's just a short-term effect. That's one problem. And the other problem is it, it doesn't really teach you that you are able to leave the thoughts alone, independent of, you know, help uh, strategies. So, so this, uh, I mean, in metacognitive therapy, we really want to teach people that independent, you don't need a big toolbox because, you know, this toolbox would just uh, stress you more. So you, people get all these huge toolboxes to kind of fall asleep and get less stressed. But actually, a big toolbox is stressing you and keeping you awake because you need to kind of remember all these coping strategies and toolbox strategies. So it's it's just maintaining the problem to do all these things and coping. So you don't really, you're not, you, you don't teach yourself. You can leave your thought alone without any tools in your toolbox, just in, by yourself. I love it. I, I think the longer I work as a therapist, the, the more I realize what I'm doing in therapy is helping people unlearn 
unhelpful <laughs> exactly. beliefs about how they should deal with feeling bad. And, and that's honestly what happens because they, they come into me and they've been working with some other therapists for years, <laughs> yeah, building yeah, up yeah. their toolkit of coping strategies for feeling bad, right? I, I honestly think this is one of the most, if not the most kind of harmful developments in the in the whole field yeah. of mental yeah. health is that we're, we're, we're perpetuating this idea that you need this huge tool belt or toolbox of tools to use when you feel bad. Uh, it's just, I mean, it's understandable. It's, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a superficially kind of compelling idea. I feel bad. I pull out this little thing and then I feel better. Right. But like you said, the problem is it's all about learning, right? It's all about what are you teaching yourself in the long term. Yeah. And you're also saying that, it, you know, emotions are dangerous. You need to avoid them. You need to get mm, them away. Exactly. So you're, you're teaching all kind of bad things in that, in that sense. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. So yeah. another kind of big picture question for you. I want to ask about the, I like to add, whenever I get other therapists and mental health professionals on the podcast, I like to ask a question about kind of the future of psychotherapy. Um, so you're a psychotherapist, obviously, mm. and the, the, the history of psychotherapy has, you know, seen a few kind of big twists and turns over the last, I don't know, century, 150 years. So let me, this is kind of a crazy question, but if you had to guess, like, what do you imagine the next big kind of turn or paradigm shift will be in the way we think about sort of mental health and, and psychotherapy in particular like like in other words if a if a time traveler from 50 years in the future showed up and said pia you're not going to believe what we're doing in therapy yeah. now it's amazing um what like what do you think what might that look like well i hope that we're going to realize that oh my god all this uh, talking about the past you know psychoanalysis and all this working on positive thinking and all these coping strategies that that was just be oh my god we did this you know 100 years ago 50 years ago now we have this very neat little itch stitch we do and we can we can actually cure emotional illnesses very fast and very quick um with a very very little operation compared to these you know long huge long-term treatments because in metacognitive therapy it takes maybe three to 12 sessions to cure a depression or anxiety problem so i really hope that that's going to be the future that we have this the metacognitive therapy become more known and i hope that we can keep the quality because the problem is that people are very eclectic and they're mixing all kinds of things so i hope we can keep metacognitive therapy uh, as pure as now so we can keep this 80 percent effect rate and we don't contaminate it too much by mixing it with other methods, which is, well, the yeah, because there's there's no protection of methods like there are with with medication, for example. That's so interesting because that's it's really a double bind with this dilemma of marketing metacognitive therapy and exactly. making it more yeah. right. Is that how do you do that without watering exactly. it down? Exactly, mm. exactly. So that's my concern. But yeah, yeah, it's you know it's really interesting what you were just saying. It 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 makes me think that one of the one of the most important I think kind of insights that you hear a lot when you when you're around or when you read stuff by by metacognitively trained professionals is this this real insistence on it's it's not about the cause the initial cause of your suffering all sorts of things can cause or trigger a, a, some form of suffering in the past right what really matters the question that really matters is and you you've said this specifically what's maintaining the suffering now mm. in the present right whether you're talking about depression or anxiety or eating disorders or ptsd or whatever it is there there's there's this this tenant everybody wants to like go back to like what's the initial thing that caught the, the first domino right is kind of our metaphor but 
but it seems to me, and you correct me if I'm wrong, but like metacognitive therapy has this wonderfully refreshing insistence on forget about that. Like keep your focus on what's actually maintaining the problem in the present and work on that. Right. Do you, is that fair? Like, exactly. is that a fair characterization of, of yeah, but I, would, I would also say, well, it's both the cause and the, the persistence of emotional disorder. So we also have a, we have a, a reason. We also have a explanation of why it's, it's caused in the first place. So everyone has negative thoughts. Everyone has uh, negative emotions, but, but if you kind of start dwelling on them, that's actually the cause of any emotional disorder. Um, and then you, of course, the maintenance as well. Yeah. 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 Okay, final question here. Um, any any last minute thoughts for for anyone listening who who is just kind of struggling with with overthinking in particular? Like, if you could, if you could recommend like one sort of concept or, or book or technique that we haven't talked about, yeah. like any, anything kind of come to mind? We haven't we haven't talked about it because I like the, this worry uh, set a t- set aside a worry time. That's really a good comprehensive. So you know you choose a time of day where you problem solve or you dwell on your problems. So the the thoughts that you kind of overthink. So you wait until that uh, time and then before that you say I let that that thought ring. Uh, I'm not going to jump on the thought. I'm just going to leave it alone. Don't try to push it away, but leave it leave it there like a mosquito bite. And then wait, and, and if you still want to like scratch it at five o'clock, you can do it. But if it stopped itching there, you can just leave it alone. Yeah. That would be the best advice. So keep it in maximum one hour rumination time. <laughs> gotcha. Gotcha. Well, and I'll, I'll, I'll take my turn here for recommendations. I, we didn't talk a, a ton about it, but, but you have a new book called Live More, Think Less. And it's kind of specifically about overcoming yes. um, depression and, and sadness. And it's, it really is wonderful and I, I would i would definitely recommend it both for, for people who struggle with this issue but also it's a really good example of kind of your distinctive this, this kind of metacognitive it is. approach and so for it people is. who want to learn more about it i think and, it's a very good if you yeah you need you need to to have it by a therapist that's the optimal effect of the, of the treatment it seems very simple but in practice it can be a bit hard to to do it in the right way because many people think they need to get rid of the thoughts but they don't yes right well, Pia, thank you so much for, for making the time. Um, I, I really appreciate it. Where can people go to learn more about, about you and, and your work? Well, well, I have a clinic in Denmark called uh, Sectos, Center, Center for Metacognitive Therapy, where you can, uh, we have an English webpage where you can um, see, you know, different options. And, and there's, um, there's an article out in Psyche, I think it's called, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Psyche. Yeah. Psyche. Um, yeah. And you can psyche. Yeah. And then you can um, you can also on my webpage you can book online therapy or group sessions in English if you want to try the metacognitive approach. Oh, interesting. So if, if I'm tried... if, if if I'm struggling with something and I live in uh, you know yeah. Colorado, in the United States, in I can United I can book States. a session with you guys. Yeah. 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 No problem. Oh, we need to cool. find a, with a, with a, <laughs> with a different difference in the in hours and so on, but that's no sure. problem. Hey everyone, thanks so much for listening to this episode of Minds and Mics. If you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate it if you took one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps out a lot. And if you've already done that, please consider sharing Minds and Mics with a friend or family member you think would enjoy it. As always, thank you for continuing to support the show, and we'll see you next time.